Good morning, church. Hope in the dark, 1 Peter, and we are going to wrap up at least chapter 4. This is what hope is going to teach us today, that hope is prepared. I don't know if you're a very prepared person by nature. I don't know what your temperament as far as organization and preparation and forethought and planning, but there's something powerful when God's people start planning and preparing God's way. So no matter what your default mode is, no matter what gear you're in as you're going through life, God's saying you might have to shift your gears because if you're going to be hopeful, you're going to be prepared. If you're not prepared, there's a reason that you're hopeless. There's a reason for discouragement. There's a reason for depression and even despair. And much of that is that you weren't prepared for what came your way. You were T-boned in the intersection of your plans and your agenda and Satan's agenda and living in a sin-cursed world where everybody else kind of has their thing going on too. And a lot of times we're not all in our own lanes, right? Uh, We got a 50-car pile up at every turn and we didn't see it coming. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? And, And this one statement might change everything for the rest of your life, all right? Maybe maybe that's a, an overstatement, oversell. But I would say this, if you're taking notes, if you got some notes to take, shoot your hand up if you don't have a handout because you're gonna need a pen ready, Bible ready, First Peter 4, and you're gonna need to jot this down. I think this is so powerful. Here's a commitment to make. I pray for the best and I prepare for the worst. I think there is a biblical mindset that prays for a certain outcome, that prays for the ideal, but is also prepared for the real. Do you hear me? We have an ideal in our minds of what it's supposed to be, what it's supposed to be like, but what happens when there's a conflict between the ideal and the real? Your prayer life should be focused on what is right and what is good and what is best, but are you prepared for when the worst washes up on your shore? Well, Peter's continuing to prepare us for whatever comes next. You know, you know what I, I love to do at the end of every service, and we've done it every single Sunday, and e- even guest speakers are, are, are getting in on this, right? We, we leave here knowing one simple but powerful truth, that you are loved. Do you know that Peter, throughout 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Part of the preparation for our own hearts is to know who we are. And eight times in First and Second Peter, Peter says, beloved, loved ones, you are beloved. You are loved by God. Your Father in heaven is crazy about you. He loves you. And this is how he starts First Peter 4. And starting in verse 12, he gets right back at this. I will prepare for fiery trials because they're going to come. But I know this. Here's the first word. Beloved, loved one, loved one, you are loved. Even when the fiery trials, even when crazy stuff happens to me and problems come my way, you are so loved. You're loved when things are good. You are loved when things are falling apart. You better believe it. You better experience that. Because what happens when the worst becomes your reality? You better know who you are. You better know who you are loved by and how deeply. If you're ready, say ready. There we go. I will prepare for fiery. Somebody say fiery. 
fiery trials. So how are we going to pray for the best and prepare for the worst? He says, first of all, you are so loved. Beloved, here's a reminder. If you have forgotten, here's the call once again. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. When suffering comes your way, don't be surprised. And we're talking not just any difficulty. We're talking hellfire hot, okay? Uh, that, that's the name of the next hotter than ghost pepper or Carolina Reaper. Hellfire hot trials. We're talking hell coming up into a world that is not yet heaven. We're not there yet. Somebody say we're not there yet. We're not to heaven yet. Therefore, we should expect, but we're always surprised, surprised when hell comes up, when trials enter in, when the mess of life and the trouble comes our way. Why is it that we are caught off guard? Well, do you know that it's not a struggle just for you? Is that comforting? For at least 2,000 years, this has been a problem in the church, okay? And every generation, and I think every church and every place needs Peter's reminding, the Holy Spirit saying, you forgot. You got surprised again, didn't you? You didn't see it coming. That's a problem. We should expect this. This is the way. Fiery trials, constantly under pressure, threats, pain, rejection, attacks, insults, suffering for doing what's wrong, suffering for doing what's right. Problems are coming our way every single time. And here's, here's the deadly lie. I don't know if you believe this lie. I don't know who told it to you, but they're wrong. Is that if you are a good person and you do good things and you choose the right, that your life will go well. I don't know who told you that, but that's a lie. That's why you're surprised, right? But God, I'm doing the right thing. Why is this happening? Who told you if you did the right thing that everything would go smoothly and it would go well for you and you'd be comfortable? Somebody lied to you along the way. And guess what? It's probably the person staring you in the face in the mirror every morning. The lies from within need to be corrected by the lies from or the truth from above so that the lies don't continue to perpetuate so that you're not surprised anymore. When word fiery trial and test, it should make you think about 1 Peter 3 and verse 9, thinking about a few weeks back. He talked about the fact that God was going to use fire, intense heat, for what purpose? Do you remember? Do you remember? There was an image of refinement. In order for you and I to change, because we don't change very well, do we? We don't, we don't kind of get on God's page very easily. We have to have the, the heat cranked up for us to finally get low and humble ourselves. And all of the junk that we pick up in the world along our journey, it's like little barbs and little stickers. And over time, we need to start getting those things off of us. And the image is of a goldsmith. Once again, how does the goldsmith know that the gold is ready and purified? Well, he doesn't just crank it up once. He cranks it up multiple times and he scrapes off all the junk that rises, all the impurities. They rise to the top and it's called dross, right? Somebody say dross. And this is what I know about you. You're full of it, okay? Dross, a lot of it, okay? And so. Am I, even in ways that I don't even realize until the cranking of the heat and that it's actually in God's goodness that these hell, hot, fire, flaming trials come my way because he's trying to change me. And the hotter it gets, the more refinement until the goldsmith can finally see what? His reflection in Jesus 
reflection is not complete in you yet. And Peter knows this. The work's not done yet. It's not done until it's done and we got a ways to go. Turn to your neighbor and say, you got a ways to go. Let him know. Like, wow, wow. Hotter, hotter heat. So why is this happening? Why? Well, one, one part of the fiery trials is that we live in a sin-cursed world, so we should expect a whole lot of sinners in our lives. And for some, not for all, for some of us, uh, we might have a slight obsession with uh, current affairs and global affairs and conspiracy theories, and we see that it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And could, could we just get some perspective? Are we living in some dark, dark times? Yes. Are these last days, final days? Yes. Is this worse than the time that Peter was writing this very letter to his church? Should we assess? Flashback, AD 64. Nero is emperor. What does Nero do? Well, nobody knows his motives, but he ends up burning down Rome. Why in the world would he do that? Well, it would be pretty convenient to burn down an entire city and then build it up for your glory and all your credit to have the most amazing city ever. And when you start from scratch, it's a little easier. But you know what's really hard is when you kind of become a tyrant uh, that is under fire with questionable motives about why this is going on and why you were on vacation for five days and you just let the whole thing burn and you weren't real quick to put it out, highly suspicious. And when you're under the spotlight and you're being interrogated, do you know how convenient it is to identify a minority group called Christians? These little nasty Christ-following cults. And it's their fault. They burnt it down. They hate what we're doing. They don't like our gods. And therefore because they're not willing to bow the knee, they're gonna to torch everything. It was their fault, let's blame them. And so you have a minority group being blamed for doing what's right and being lied about and attacked. I wish we could relate. Could the Bible please be relevant? So irrelevant. I wish we could understand a little bit of that. And guess what, it gets worse. If you think it's bad in 2023 and you're thinking about what's next for my kids and grandkids, well, what was next for the Christians was that they were now going to be turned into uh, a little tea light party and they were going to take stakes and they were going to drive them up the anuses of Christians alive and they were going to torch them after they dipped them in tar, lit them on fire and paved the way for the road as the rebuild and the parties occurred. So how hard do you have it? Is it? How bad is it? You think it's getting worse and worse? We've been here before. It's been really bad throughout history. It's been different degrees of bad. Fiery trials have fell upon the church throughout the history of the church. And because right now we have a little bit of opposition that feels like a whole lot of persecution, could we just be honest and say, we ain't seen nothing yet. But we might in our lifetime. And what's going to happen when opposition turns into real intense persecution? How are you going to respond? Peter's, he said, at least foundationally, don't be surprised. They're going to come and you need to be prepared, need to be prepared because you refuse to accommodate to the current culture and the, the wave of atheism and agnosticism. Uh, I think just the latest poll is not just in the youngest generation, but across the board in our nation, I believe we're up to 68% uh, when they identify religiously, they're up to 68% nuns. I believe in nothing. I attach myself to nothing. Okay, And that's rapidly 
growing. We are in a culture that believes nothing, and we believe very strongly about certain things that matter eternally, and there's conflict. And we need to be reminded of this. This ain't heaven, so don't be shocked when hell shows up. Okay? At least don't be surprised. Can we get real, real honest? The, the more that we listen to each other complain about things reveals that we're continuing to be surprised by things. And maybe your complaining is a heart attitude of I wasn't prepared and I don't know what to do now that hell showed up in my life and I don't know what else to respond with. And what if Peter today is just saying, start preparing, complain and vent less, be prepared more, and when it comes, you know what to do. You know what to do. Because number two, here we go. I will prepare specifically, here we go. He's helping us out. Suffering and slander. Suffering and slander. What does verse 13 say? Oh, I, I'm loved. I know I'm loved. But fire and trials are coming. And I'm being tested here. And God's calling me to, what's the second word there? But, here's the contrast. Don't be surprised. But rejoice. Somebody say that. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejo so rejoice when persecution comes. Rejoice when nothing goes my way. Everything falls apart. When I didn't get what I thought I wanted. When the thing that I needed the most was taken away from me. When I'm experiencing loss and heartache. When I'm experiencing attacks and rejection. I'm supposed to rejoice. Really? Well, let's get some context. Rejoice about what? Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice because you're partnering with Jesus in your suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad. He doubles down, right? Not just rejoice, but rejoice and be glad. Well, when do I do that? Can I do that right now? Because right now doesn't look so rejoiceful. It doesn't look like it's glad-inducing. And here's the good news he gives us. You're looking forward to when his glory is revealed. Somebody say, oh. We're not looking in the face of the trial and saying, I love the trial. I love you, trial. We're not saying that. We're saying, I'm looking past the trial. I'm looking beyond it, and there's glory. I know what's right in front of me, but I know what's right behind. I know this seems like it's never going to end, but glory's on the horizon, and it's coming soon. I wonder if we need that reminder, glory's coming. It's coming. Do you smell it? It's in the air. Do you taste it? Just get, get, get a little, do you have heavenly taste buds where you're like, mm. we get little samples. We get just a, a, a little sampler, little flashes of it, and we go, I'm going to get the whole thing soon. I'm going to get the whole, that was awesome, but like awesomeness forever is coming and I can put this thing that's really hard in perspective. What does he say in verse 14? If you're insulted, here we go. It's not just that you suffer in different ways in trials. There's insults. Insulted for the name of Christ, though. Not because you're obnoxious, right? Not because you're left-wing, right-wing, whatever else. You're insulted because of the name of Christ. That's what he's talking about. And he says, you're blessed. You're exceedingly glad and hope-filled because the spirit of glory, there's that word again, spirit of glory, the spirit of God rests upon you. You will suffer with your 
identification for Christ. But it's all worth it. It's all worth it. God is telling every moment that you are choosing glory to come and that your heart is set on him in obedience and that you are patiently waiting in the midst of the stuff that you feel like has taken you down, like you're in quicksand and you're ready to go under. And God says, there's glory and it's going to keep your head above and it's going to keep you filled with hope. And the world can't offer any of that. This is a vertical deal that changes your horizontal responses. I don't know how you're responding, but Peter's basically saying there's a God behind all that the people are doing and everything that they're taking out on you. And if in this moment all you get in that pain is just a painfully sinful response, you don't get to rejoice. And if you just give up and run away, like a slimy watermelon seed under pressure and you you just pop right out. When it gets hard, you run and escape, you lose. But if you stay under, you say, there's something awesome up ahead for you. Don't move. Don't feel like you're going under because you're going to miss a beautiful thing that God is seeking to do in you and through you in those moments. I don't know about you, but who are the people, as you're watching, as you're observing, who are the people that are making the greatest impact and influencing you to follow Jesus? Are they the people that are going smoothly through life and that they just know a lot of Bible knowledge? Are those the people that you're like, wow, they really challenge me. They they really push me. Or is it the people that you're like, I don't know how they survive that. I don't know how they're going through that. I don't know how they keep on going without quitting, without escaping. And they're loving Jesus through it and they're patient through the process. That's somebody that's living it bright and shiny in a dark world that's calling us to do the same. So what if, what if we were a church that looked at this call of not forgetting, knowing we're beloved, that we are loved by God, that we don't forget we're going to suffer and that hell, fire, trouble is going to come our way and that we're called to respond differently than anybody else on the face of the planet and that there is glory that is coming. And I love the emphasis that Peter makes and that the Spirit of God rests on that one. Isn't that a beautiful image? Do you, do you remember seeing some imagery like that before? Jesus tiptoes into the water glides towards John the Baptist, about to inaugurate his ministry of three to four years. And it starts with the baptism that is an image, a portrait for the rest of us of follow in his footsteps, do what he does, that Jesus went first. And John the Baptist saying, I, no, not me. No, you're exactly the guy because God uses people that are available and that are willing to speak up and step out, not because they're perfect, but because they're available. They're there. And what did Jesus experience? Affirming words from heaven. This is my son. Well pleased with this one right here and the Spirit of God descending on Jesus, the the Spirit upon him. How awesome is it 
that he knew what was ahead. He knew fiery trials. He knew accusations were around the corner. He knew that he was going to be tortured for speaking up and speaking the truth. He was going to die. He was going to die for the sins of all the world. And his confidence every step of the way was, my father is pleased with me. The spirit is upon me to anoint me to do this work. This is so awesome. Peter's like, get this, get this. You're not alone in going through the darkness. You're not alone as you walk through the fiery trial. Matthew 16, 24 says this. Jesus told his disciples, if anybody come, comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Carry with you your torture device because you're going to die if you follow Jesus. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant, he's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will, somebody say will, 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 guaranteed. They will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they're gonna keep yours also. Some are gonna try to kill you and shut you up and others are actually gonna take heed to your word. They're gonna grab hold of it. They're gonna hear you just like they did Jesus. So to be a Christian is to be stereotyped is to be slandered. It's not if, it's always when. And maybe maybe you're here this morning going, I know what that's like. Been there. I've had to take a stand. I've been mocked. I've been ridiculed. And I had a choice to make of, am I going to back down or am I going to keep pressing on? And I know that there's some of us also that no one has ever come up against you or attacked you because they don't even know you're a Christian because there's no evidence in your life that you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. That when you go through hard stuff, you fall apart, just like pagans do. You're not different. So I don't know where you're at on either side, but here's, here's the really good news. You know you're going to suffer, so prepare for it. You know you're going to be slandered, so prepare for it. So here, I got two don'ts and two do's, okay? Straight from, from the Word. What does Peter say? He says, you should... Never do this. Uh, don't suffer because of choosing evil, okay? Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. What does he say? Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, excuse me, let's back up. Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed, but let him glorify God. In that name. So what do we do? We don't, we don't suffer because of choosing evil. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Stop complaining about the struggles you're going through because you chose the stupid path, right? You, you had wisdom and stupidity and you went, ah, stupid, take the left. It's your fault. You did it, right? Stop doing evil and suffering the consequences and saying, oh, oh, my life is so hard. In Jesus' name, maybe we just need to hear, no, you're an idiot. Stop, right? You desire bad, and you choose the bad, and then you get bad consequences. He's like, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't cave in to pressure. Don't join the world. Don't feel like you are entitled. We talked about last week that when we are going through the trouble and through the trials, we have a tendency to do this. Because I've suffered so much and my life has been so hard, I'm entitled to. I have the right to. I owe it to myself. 
Because I had such a bad week, I owe it to myself to indulge in sin just a little bit. Because my upbringing was so bad, I have a right to now rebel and sow my wild oats for a decade. I have a right. No, you, you don't. You have a right to do evil and then suffer. And for, for many of us, we just need to get that further and further in the rear view mirror of I'm not going to keep going down that road. It's got a hole in it, and I keep driving down the same path and falling in the same hole. I'm done with that. That's the old me. I'm not going that way. Peter says, you don't get any brownie points. You don't get a star on the chart for doing stupid and getting the bad, the hard, as a consequence. Verse 16, yet if any anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't be, don't be ashamed of Christ, so don't Suffer because of choosing evil. And don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christ and Christianity. Never before in recent history has there been so much pressure to apologize for what Christianity has held to as firm foundations and solid doctrine and upholding practices and lifestyles that are godly. Never before have we been under so much pressure to renounce it and to apologize for it. Could we be a church that we're not going to apologize? I'm not going to apologize. One thing that we've emphasized in the past is that uh, we have unapologetic preaching at our church. We preach unapologetically. We don't apologize for what the word says. You can shoot the messenger all you want, but we're just, this is what the message says. This is the letter that he wrote, and we're just handing it out. And if we're under pressure to succumb, to get in line and to conform, we just got to be honest. No. We're just not going to do that. But it feels wrong to judge others. We're not judging anybody. We're just saying what God has said. And God's going to judge them on that day. Should they need some warning? Because you think our little judgment is hard? They're going to face the king of the universe in judgment. I want to help them before they get there. And I want to help them clarify what is right and wrong in a day when wrong is right and right is wrong. Can, can we take a stand? without being nasty, without being ugly, without being nasty, hypocritical bigots that we're accused of being? Can we do it in a way that is loving, caring, and compassionate? But it's still true, no matter how you feel, no matter how I feel about it. What's true has always been true, and we tend to be ashamed. I'm ashamed that the Bible says that. I'm ashamed of Jesus' words. I'm ashamed that my church stands for that. And today, you can just say, I'm done being ashamed. I'm done being ashamed. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Christianity. Jesus' lordship rules my heart and my faith because it's not just private. I got to go public. Verse 13, going back to 13. Rejoice, he says, because you're going to suffer the sufferings of Christ because he wasn't ashamed. You're going to be glad on that day when you recognize I was with him every step of the way to the very end. You know, it's hard to imagine. It's hard for, for us to think about the here and now. I jotted this down. The struggles that we go through are so difficult to imagine that there's a day when we're going to experience shocking, stunning, pervasive, long-term glory that we are going to look back on anything that was hard and it's almost going to be forgettable. There's going to be a day that no matter how people treat you and whatever you face, you believe this? 
that even a moment, one moment in heaven and the glories that are going to be experienced, and you know it's just the first taste of all eternity, you're going to look back and it's going to be a faint, faint memory of, yeah, I guess that was kind of hard. The apostles that were tortured to death throughout church history, the martyrs that went before us and were tortured the moment they stepped into heaven by their second step, they were like, I vaguely remember being skinned alive, cut in half, boiled to death in tar. Vaguely. I don't know how awesome heaven is to you, but maybe you don't know heaven the way that God desires for you to know what the glory is to come. Do you believe God was silent in that? We should teach a whole series on glory. It's coming, okay? It's coming to a church near you. It is hard to imagine that the hardest things are going to be so quickly forgotten, but that's how glorious God is in his presence. And when suffering and slandering comes, here's two do's, okay? Two do's. Anybody, anybody a to-do list person, okay? This is for you. Would you just give me a list? Give me a list, okay? Here's two do's, okay? First one, do rejoice and be glad. In a sense, God is commanding our emotions. Can he do that? Did God make your emotions? Okay, so I guess God can command you to express and feel certain things. Well, is that possible on demand? Can I just say, okay, self, rejoice, uh, be glad. Can I do that? Uh, picture with me a sailboat. Is there a possibility that with the sails down, even on a windy day, that you're going to be cruising very fast? Not, not likely. So what's your part? Your part in this command of rejoice and be glad is get the sails up to catch the wind of the Spirit to get moving down this path of circumstances. Yep, they're still there. Hard stuff. Yep, not going away. But I'm getting my sails up and I'm saying, God, fill me with rejoicing. Fill me with gladness. Even in the midst, I'm not going to wait to the other side. I want it right now because God's commanding us, do it. I can prepare for it, I can pray for it, and I can be looking forward to catching some wind. Rejoice and be glad. If any suffers as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Ugh. Rejoice, be glad. What else should we do? Here's a do. Do glorify God. It's a command. Glorify him, glorify him. Well, how in the world am I supposed to, if I got my sail up, some of us are so passionate with our emotions, and you can be really passionate even about Jesus, but some of us are big personalities, strong personalities, and the only deal is if you don't have a rudder, you can be so passionately cruising, right, catching the wind, and boom, you hit the rocks, right? You crash and burn. You need a rudder. God's saying, the glory of my name, God says is the rudder that is going to set your course. Who are you living for? What do you want to see the end of this become? And I hope your heart, over time, grows stronger and stronger. And I just want to glorify God. Whatever brings glory to his name, whatever God has to do, whatever I have to endure, whatever it is, my goal, my aim, the bullseye is his glory. My rudder is in. I'm getting my sails up. And no matter what comes my way, I'm preparing for the suffering that was promised. It was guaranteed 
Even though it's hard, there's no way to avoid it. So if you're on Team Jesus, what is going to be true about you? Well, Jesus was beloved, and you are beloved because you're in him. That's how he starts this, right? Beloved. Look at the suffering and slandering that Jesus experienced. He was loved. Did Jesus' life always look like, on the outside, did it, did it look like he was the most loved one in the universe? And so why should we expect going through our lives being crazy loved by God that our life would look any different than the slandering and the suffering that the master that we're following went through and he went through it first and he's loved. How about Jesus' joy? If we're commanded to have this kind of rejoicing, did Jesus have joy? Oh, eternal joy. How do we know that? Hebrews 12, 2. Do you want to write that down? Write that address down. Right. Now, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus. That's who we look to. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. What do we see as we look to him? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. There was joy set before him that allowed him to endure the cross. He despised the shame. And now he's where? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you believe that? That there was a joy that Jesus had that was like suffering, excruciating pain, a word that they had to make up after Jesus suffered on the cross, a type of pain that came out of the cross, that he was willing to be tortured as an innocent man for guilty criminals for all of eternity. All of that was poured on him so that we could be set free, but he had a joy that allowed him to endure. So honesty time, honesty in God's house. How well are you doing at responding when life doesn't go your way, when problems knock on your door, when people mistreat you and disrespect you? What is your response? Is there any level of my joy is found in Jesus, not in my circumstances? My joy is found in him alone. Uh, we were just discussing over our summer blast one thing that's been on the news big time has been the, the Sooners uh, softball team champions year after year, Oklahoma Sooners, and a whole slew of college softball champions standing at the podium being interviewed by the news. And one by one, guess what? The responses were to questions. What, what if you lose this next championship? And what's going to happen to the team and the morale and, and every single one of them? Are you kidding me? Our, our joy is not found in winning a game or a championship. Our, found is, our, our founded joy, our deep-rooted joy is only in Jesus. And guess what? He's not changing. And guess what? Our confidence is not changing whether we win or lose because our identity is not wrapped up in a game. Our identity is wrapped up in Jesus. We're like, ah! this is on ESPN, right? This is on... CBS News, like what we're, we're talking everywhere and just bold, direct confidence, joy no matter what. And for us, we have one person say the wrong thing at the wrong time and it destroys our whole week. One person doesn't like us. One person doesn't call us back. We have one person that disrespects us slightly and we crumble under the pressure of any type of trial. Get prepared, church. Because if you can't make it in the small stuff, you're, you're not going to be bold making your way through when it counts. When the world's watching, are you going to take a stand and say, my joy is not founded in any of this? Take it all away. Give me Jesus. Right? Give me Jesus. I don't need 
any of this. Peter's saying this is all founded in the Jesus who went first. He went first. He was loved, full of joy, had all power, and didn't use his power to escape the pain. I jotted this down. More painful suffering, more powerful spirit. The more painful the suffering, the more energy and the more power that the Spirit gives us to be able to endure. So we should set our expectations that not just the temperature is going to be cranked up, the dial is going up, the fiery trials are getting hotter and hotter, and we don't know where it's going to end. But do you know what else we have? Not just guarantee of the hard stuff, but guaranteed of God's powerful stuff to follow. If we're going to go through it, God's showing up right there in the midst. He hasn't left us. He is going to pour it on. He's going to give us everything we need while we're going through it, except we don't really like that equation. We kind of like the, this is really hard. God, if you're really good, take it away. God, I've been asking you for weeks or months or maybe years, and you're not answering me. Therefore, you're bad because the situation's bad. There's something about this endurance that refines us and changes us, and we hate it, and we refuse the trial. And what did Peter say in the beginning? These trials are there to test us. How are you doing with the test? Think back this past six months, beginning of the year. How about last year? How about last week? As the temperature rises, is your response telling a story that you refuse to follow him through the fiery trial in order to pass the test? Instead, you want to run, escape, blame, and accuse. And you keep failing the test, and God keeps bringing you back to the same place. Do you realize that a 40-day trip turned into 40 years? Because a group of God's people would not choose to pass the test. And so maybe here's some truth this morning. You're exactly where you are today with some of the trials because you are unteachable and you are arrogant and you are hard-hearted. I'm not saying all. I'm saying some of us keep going around the same thing over and over again because we refuse to surrender to God's purposes in the hard stuff, to be changed by it so that we can find our way out of it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little dizzy going around the same old mountain, not learning the same thing that he's trying to teach me. And at what point are we going to just say, I surrender? I get it. You're, you're trying to work on me. You're not trying to change them. You're trying to work on me. You're trying to conform me. You're not going to take me out of the fire, but you're going to be with me in it. Suffering and slandering will come. How about this? Here's some thoughts from the front lines. I just wanted to bring some summary statements together as we get close to, to landing here. If you believe that biblical Christianity is the most loving and helpful, then love people enough to remain steadfast, not out of anger to defeat them, whoever them is, but to love, to deliver them. The only way to avoid suffering and slander is to say, do, and have nothing. Because if you say anything, if you do anything, if you have anything worth anything, you are going to be attacked. And I love this. Billy Graham, turn your critics into coaches. I believe he was interviewed at the end of his life. How do you endure ministry, doing the right thing and being attacked? 
If you do one thing, you get attacked from the left. If you do another thing, you get attacked from the right. How is it that you take a stand for the gospel decade after decade, and all you do is get backlash and attacks? And he's like, there's something to learn from every feedback, from every accusation. There's always a teachable moment. What's true about that attack? What's true about the persecution, the oppression that's coming my way? Is there anything that I've done? Billy Graham would ask, and I think that's good for us. If you're on the front lines, it's coming your way, right? If you've already given God your sin, here's a big question. Why not throw in your reputation also? If you're a born-again believer, and I don't know where you're at spiritually, if you have been forgiven of all of your sin, why are you still holding on to your reputation? If you're all in with Jesus, and you want him to be all in forgiving you, and if Jesus didn't care about his reputation, why do you still care so deeply about yours? What is it about us that is eager to go to heaven, but terrified to have a little bit of hell show up that might mar your reputation in your name? If we're standing up for Jesus and they're attacking Jesus, what's going to come your way, even in the next weeks or months? I don't know. But at least pause and ask the question, why do I care so much about what they think about me. I have one judge. I have one person I'm concerned about what he thinks. And guess what? He loves me. He loves me perfectly. If Jesus loves you, then who cares what anybody else thinks about you? That's good news. That's going to lead us to Tuesday morning and Saturday night. The power and joy of the Spirit are often waiting for you in the darkness. So why are you running scared to step and risk it towards a dark place? Why are you so eager to get out of it when the Spirit of God is meeting you right there? It's hard to think about you alone in the darkness, but you're not alone. It's scary to think about your ability to stay under the pressure, but it's not you shouldering the weight of it. The power and joy of the Spirit meets you right there. How about this? Don't worry about being on the wrong side of history. Anybody listening to a whole lot of you want to be on the wrong side of history and where do you stand politically? What if God's church would care less about that and care more about this truth? Do worry about being on the right side of eternity and all the rest will fall into place. Everybody say, land the plane. Number three, I will prepare to suffer for doing good. I will do good. I will choose the good no matter what it costs. I will choose the right path even if it means suffering attacks, insults, and slander. I'm gonna do the right thing. Many of us know what it looks like to do the wrong, to go our way. But Peter says, this is so, so crucial. Verse 17, are you there? Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin where? At, at, at the state capitol in D.C.? Is that where judgment needs to start? Oh, church, let's get this right. Judgment needs to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what is he saying? There is a right judgment. There's a right assessment and evaluation. And we are to look around as a church and say, are you living it? Not just thinking about it, not just talking it, not just pretending, not just parading and facading it, but are you, are you living it? And if not, we need each other to say, you've gone the wrong way. You've wandered. Come on, come on back. You're not thinking rightly about that. This is what scripture says. And this is how the world has discipled you. 
and they're not the same. And so you, you need to change your mind and you need to get in line with what God's word says. Judgment starts here. And as much as we live in a world of, don't judge me, don't judge me, everybody's judgmental, everybody's judging me. Nowhere in scripture does it say that we are to judge people except where it says to judge people. So can we just be honest where God says, judge in God's house, not criticize, not undermine, not demean, not condemn, but healthy, sober judgment. And he says, man, if that's hard for God's people to do and we're not faring so well, just imagine those that are far from God. Just imagine the horrors and the end of their story. He said, this is, this is so weighty, but we got to do the right thing. The flames of fiery trial, what do they do? They expose who is really on the side of hell. And I know that's a, that's a tough one. When people that claim that they know Jesus go through hard stuff, sometimes the flames of refinement expose that they're imposters. Because when it gets hard, they, they run. And we would call this apostasy. And just, just this past week, again, you don't have to go very far in 2023 to read headlines of former pastor of megachurch and best-selling author rejects Christianity and shacks up with a gay prostitute. Former pastor and author rejects Christianity, divorces his family, and is no longer in contact with his kids. Well, if pastors are dropping like flies, what hope is there that any of us can make it through the testing and the fire and the pressure? But the, the fire is there to reveal where's everybody really at? Because even pastors can fool churches. Pastors can even fool themselves, but they can't fool God. And it's gonna come out someday. The flames of fiery trial burn away our sin and foolishness. We would call this sanctification. Sanctification is what? Not just that you're justified, not just that you're saved, but now you're on a journey for the rest of your life. And as you go through trials, God's saying, the trials are good for you and they're good to be able to expose the dross, to be able to change you so that the worldliness that you grew so, so accustomed to now is burnt off and now you are refined, you are made holy. So the hard stuff is the good stuff if we're authentic and if the Holy Spirit rests upon us, that we're being changed through it, but the flames are really, really hot. So what does Peter say? He says, for doing good, for doing good. And I just want to wrap up with this. For doing good, if we're, if we're going to take a stand and do what's right, if we're on the winning team, we're on team Jesus, what does doing good look like? Well, here's a couple. Walking in faithful obedience to God. Are you doing that? some hard stuff is coming your way, fiery trials, but you're walking in faithful obedience to God. Therefore, you have a bullseye on your back from the enemy, being a good witness to his grace and power. Are you speaking up? Because your faith is not just private, it's public. Your faith starts personally, but it's gotta go public to be declared, to be shared. That's doing good. Walking in obedience, being a good witness, living for eternity, not this world. Living for eternity. I don't know if you're feeling the pressure more than ever to just live for the here and now and what you see and what makes you comfortable and making decisions just based on feelings. And God's calling us to something greater. Live for what lasts forever. Live for what lasts forever. Can we say that together? Live for what lasts forever. If we could go into this week and just say, God, I'm done living for just the here and now, little pleasures, 
and then I'm suffering consequences because I'm not living right. I want to live for you and I want to do good. I don't want to just keep it to myself. I want to spread it everywhere I go, but it's going to be hot. The flames are going to get turned up. And when hell shows up at work in my family, I'm going to expect it. I'm going to be prepared.